I want you to meet Marvin Anderson. Marvin was at work one day. This is in 1982. And his supervisor came and said that um, he wanted Marvin to come and speak with the police. The police were there to speak with Marvin. A rape had happened in his neighborhood, and they wanted to question him about it. They did question him about it, and then they asked if he would go down to the police station and answer more questions. And he was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He said that would be fine. He went down to the station, answered more questions. And behind the scenes, the police were working on identifying Marvin as their prime suspect. They were showing pictures to the victim. She identified him in the pictures for various reasons that were not true. He was innocent. He even had an alibi. They put him in a lineup, and she identified him in the lineup as her assailant, and he was sentenced to 210 years in prison for rape, sodomy, robbery, and about three or four other things. And he was innocent. Fifteen years later, he, he was released, he was exonerated because of DNA evidence that was found that proved him to be innocent. He now serves on the board of directors for a, a national litigation group called the Innocence Project. And the mission of the Innocence Project is to free wrongfully convicted individuals by the use of DNA testing. And Marvin serves on the board. Here's what they say about um, what I just described to you is eyewitness misidentification. Here's what the Innocent Project says about that. Eyewitness misidentification is the single greatest cause of wrongful convictions nationwide playing a role in more than 75% of convictions overturned through DNA evidence. Research shows that the human mind is not like a tape recorder. If you're 18 years old or under, you don't know what a tape recorder is, so ask your parents to describe this to you. It's kind of like an MP3 player. Think of a, a video on your phone that you, that you record. All right? we, our, our brains neither record events exactly as we see them, nor recall them like a tape or a file or a video that has been rewound and replayed. So we don't record them accurately. We don't recall them accurately because they come through our own filters. Instead, witness memory is like any other evidence at a crime scene. It must be preserved carefully and retrieved methodically or it can be contaminated. The Bible says that eyewitness misidentification happened to Jesus. Not once, but twice. All right, Matthew chapter 26, verse 60, says that when Jesus was on trial, the chief priests and the teachers of the law had prearranged false witnesses to come in to testify, giving testimony that would uh, identify Jesus as the criminal and crucify him. The false, the false witnesses came in. They did exactly that. That was the first time of eyewitness misidentification. Of course, then that began a path where uh, Pilate decreed that Jesus should be crucified, and uh, the, then the crowd had a choice. Barabbas or Jesus, which one is the criminal? Which one should die? Crucify Jesus. Free Barabbas. That continues that eyewitness misidentification number one. Eyewitness misidentification number two happens later, and you saw it in the video today. It's in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want and follow this along. 
But, but look at how this misidentifies Jesus, uh, number two here, and incriminates him in this way. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Everything that had happened was Jesus rose from the dead. An angel showed up. An earthquake happened. The guards fell back half dead. And now the guards go to the chief priests and say, Whoa! Here's what happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. They're bribing them now. Telling them, You are to say... His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. That's what you saw in the video today. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The religious authorities, like Caiaphas, would not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And as, as witnesses of this, their filter convinced them actually that he did not. And then they wanted to convince the guards and convince the people and you too. They just didn't want to believe that a miracle, it took a miracle to save them. Now, that's just the start of all kinds of theor conspiracy theories and eyewitness misidentifications that have happened about Jesus since then. So have you heard of any of these theories about uh, explaining that the resurrection didn't happen? Right? So the swoon theory says that Jesus actually didn't die. That he was just in this coma-like state and that Joseph of Arimathea buried a, a, an alive guy, not a corpse, and that the aroma of the spices and the cool tomb woke Jesus up from this coma-like state and he never really died at all. That's the swoon theory. The uh, mass hallucination theory says this. All of those witnesses who saw Jesus, they just all wanted to see him so bad that they thought they saw him, but they really didn't. All of them. The uh, wrong tomb theory figure that one out. It says the disciples went to the wrong tomb, saw that it was empty, and then assumed that Jesus had risen, but they didn't go to the right tomb. And the twin brother theory? Yeah. Jesus had a twin brother and they crucified him. And then when Jesus was walking around, it was the real Jesus and not his dead twin brother. Yeah, and there's more. Um, What's fun is to go into the scriptures and refute every one of those theories. They're really silly, actually. Uh, and so this, I'm going to do this for you as a bonus. This week, I will send to you the scriptural rebuttal to every one of these theories if you email me a check-in, anyone who is reading along in our Bible reading plan in the book of Acts, and if you email me and you tell me you're reading in the book of Acts, I'll send you the refutation, the rebuttal to each one of those theories. It's kind of fun, neat to look at, but only if you email me and tell me you're reading Acts. All right, that was a little commercial right there. All right, so let's get beyond those. And here's what I want to do today. I know, I know most or all of you, and, uh, and I don't think the biggest issue in the room this morning is convincing you that Jesus rose from the dead. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with those silly theories and debunking them. Like I said, I can do that in email very quickly this week. Here's my challenging question for you this morning, and where we're going to go the rest of the sermon. 
Jesus' resurrection is indeed a miracle. It really happened. So my challenging question for you is, is what's the evidence that Jesus' resurrection is a miracle and not a myth in your life? If investigators were hired and they were sent to question you and watch you and observe you, what would show them that the, that the resurrection of Jesus is alive and active and making a difference in changing your life? See, the, re- the resurrection of Jesus meant that Jesus triumphed victoriously over the curse of sin. But what I see is I see people willing to accept guilt and shame in their lives. People do this. You do this. And not just willing to accept guilt and shame, but people go out and find it. I see you choosing to make yourself miserable because you think that 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 will somehow pay for the guilt and shame that you feel. That's crazy thinking, but people do this. You do this. You think that by causing yourself pain in some way or becoming miserable, you're going to pay for your guilt and shame and make it all better, and it doesn't work. Jesus' resurrection triumphed victoriously over the devil and his lies. But what I see is I see people believing in the devil's lies way too often. I see people giving in to sin and temptation, and not only that, but actually enjoying it. There are sins that you enjoy doing. Different sins for different people, but there are sins that you, act, you do them because you enjoy them. And then afterwards you feel guilty. Afterwards you're like, I didn't want to do that. But, but that doesn't last. And you go back and you do that sin again. Because the devil lies to you and he tells you that you need it. He tells you that you're entitled to it. He tells you and lies to you and says, no one else is getting hurt. No one's going to know. The resurrection of Jesus triumphed victoriously over death, too. And death is not the final destiny for believers. Death is not a big deal. We've overcome it. Not only eternally, but here in this life. Hopelessness does not exist for believers. And yet I see people living as if it does. I see people giving up on hope. I see people, I see you, satisfied with a mediocre, lukewarm, spiritual life. There are people in this room whose 401ks are maturing more than your faith. So you tell me, is the resurrection of Jesus alive and active in your life? Although the resurrection of Jesus really happened, we can think and feel and believe and behave as if it hasn't. Three months ago, my sister 
was on, she was just on cloud nine. She had more hope than ever. This is my younger sister. And, uh, and she, got, she got married years ago and had three kids with a man who abused her. And she divorced him, got rid of him, thankfully, for her own safety, literally. And because he was wrong, he was sinning, and she could do that scripturally. Uh, but the courts have not allowed him to be totally out of her life or the kids' lives. Um, he's, he's allowed visitation and semi-custody on some weekends. And uh, he is a smart man and a, a manipulator. And he has manipulated the court system against her to wear down her spirit, to rob her of her joy. He's constantly contesting, constantly accusing her of things she hasn't done wrong. Experts say that the court system is helpful for 95% of divorce cases and custody battles for children, 95% of them. And for 5% of them, they get stuck in a system that is not helping them. She was one of those 5%. Until she met a man named Dale Nathan. Dale Nathan is an attorney in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And uh, he became fed up with that 5%. Of, of victims who are caught in the system. And he dedicated his life to helping people like my sister. He used his experience in law and his experience in the community to, to understand the evidence. He uh, leveraged that experience to work through the system or sometimes around it so that true justice was done. And he was willing to take my sister's case he appeared on 2020, on the television show 2020, two Fridays ago. The day after that show, he died. Natural causes, nothing spooky, but he just, he died. He, was, he had been sick and he's not here anymore to help my sister. And her hopes died with him. You have someone... You have someone who is an expert in the evidence. You have someone whose experience is so perfect that it can represent you. And he's willing to take your case. And he died for everything you've ever done wrong or will ever do wrong. And he rose from the dead so that your enemies cannot wear down your spirit, cannot rob you of your joy, cannot manipulate you or intimidate you. And his name is Jesus. I want to read to you now the difference that he makes for you and how his resurrection is real and alive in these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what I'm preaching on here. I just started preaching without reading it, but I'm going to read it now. Um, it's printed on page 4 in your worship folder. It's also projected up here as I'm going to read it, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. As I read these words, I want you to ask yourself this question. What does the resurrection of Jesus look like in my life? Now, listen to these words. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthians. Uh, and in the Corinthian church, there were theories and, and people doubted the resurrection of Jesus or weren't living like it and he wanted to make it real. So listen to these words. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then He appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. It's kind of a weird phrase there, that last one, abnormally born. Um, The Greek word there that Paul uses literally means born at the wrong time. And in his culture... The, the healthcare world used that word for premature births or miscarriages. And so Paul is saying, he even appeared to me as one born at the wrong time, born in the wrong way. I was, I was not naturally a person who knew the resurrection and was a believer. I wasn't that naturally. But I was reborn. So it was all packed in this phrase. Paul saying, I was reborn. I was given a, a, a chance, a new life by Jesus, by his grace. And so Paul saying, I'm, I have personally experienced what I'm telling you now. And he's building up his credibility by that phrase. I want to tell you about three people. They're mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. The first is Peter. What do you know about the Apostle Peter, right? As a disciple and as an apostle? Peter is a fisherman. Like all fishermen, Peter would like to tell fish stories. If you're a fisherman, we all know you tell fish stories. Don't deny it. Well, the biggest fish story that Peter told was that evening when he was uh, rubbernecking and kind of trying to check, check out what was happening to Jesus who was on trial and Peter was in the courtyard and he was close enough but distant enough where he wouldn't be identified as a disciple of Jesus and his servant girl comes up to him and says, hey, you are one of his followers, aren't you? Remember that? And Peter told a fish story. He faked it. He lied. No, I'm not. I don't know who that is. I don't even know who you're talking about. And he swore and he called down curses from heaven on himself saying, I I swear I don't know that. Three times. He faked it. So that he wouldn't be arrested like Jesus was and killed like Jesus was. Except it, it did kill him. On the inside. Jesus died for Peter. Jesus went to the cross and suffered for Peter. And Jesus then rose from the dead and he appeared to Peter. He said, Peter, you don't have to feel guilty about faking it. I went to the cross. I did not fake it. I was faithful for you. I went all the way to death for you, Peter. And now I'm here. And Peter, I don't want you to fake it anymore. You know what became of Peter then after the resurrection? If you're tracking along in our Bible reading in Acts, right, as we're going to chapters 10, 11, and 12, you've been reading about Peter. He became the leader of the followers of Jesus, of the way, of the disciples. He became the leader of the Christians. And he wrote scripture. 
testifying to the resurrection. And church legend has it that in the end, Peter refused to deny his Savior ever again, and it cost him his life and being crucified on a cross just like his Savior. And there's Mary. Mary's emotions would always get the best of her. She just had a hard time with anxiety and, and worry. She just went into a depression after Jesus died, her, her Savior, her Rabbi, her Lord. Uh, she didn't know what to do with herself, and she could not control these, these feelings. She, she worried what would happen now that he was gone, and she just felt overwhelmed. Jesus died for all of that. And during the process of dying, Jesus experienced all of those feelings that Mary felt about him and about herself and about what was happening. And then Jesus went to the cross for anything that was ever sinful about those feelings in Mary's heart. And then he appeared to her. Mary. He spoke her name and she melted. It was after Jesus rose from the dead. When she thought he was a gardener, remember? Mary. Why are you crying? Don't be afraid. I am risen. I am here. And, and Mary knew what to do with her fears from then on. Mary knew that she didn't need to be afraid ever about anything. Because with her Savior, she didn't need to be. And Mary was so confident, so courageous, she went and told others. She's the one who told the disciples, I've seen the Lord, he's risen. And she told all her friends. And her friends believed because Mary believed. And she believed more than she worried. Thomas, as a disciple, Thomas didn't think too highly of himself. Thomas actually felt like he really wasn't a good fit. With the twelve, he wondered why Jesus chose him. He just didn't feel like he had the strength and the giftedness like the other disciples did. He doubted in himself. He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the twelve, so he, he, was, he didn't see it with his own eyes. But Jesus came back for Thomas. Jesus didn't leave him behind, and Jesus was willing to show him his hands and his side and say, Thomas, put your fingers here in the nail marks. Put your hand in my side. Thomas, Jesus said after he rose, you don't need to doubt anymore. You don't need to doubt in yourself. You don't need to doubt about me. And Thomas believed. He believed so much that church legend has it that Thomas became a missionary to India. And he ended up being martyred there, being killed for his faith. Because he never wanted to doubt again. So you have these, these appearances that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 here. And you have these followers of Jesus. We have timid accountants and we have unschooled fishermen and we have fathers. And we have former lepers, we have teenagers, we have murderers, 
We have religious leaders who find it hard to handle this Sabbath breaker named Jesus. We have women, some of whom who have miscarried, some of whom who have slept with men who aren't their own husbands, some of them who are widows. And you have all of them relentlessly holding on to the fact that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. They saw him, and they would not back down from their stories. And they would not forget Jesus appearing to them and smiling on them with his loving grace. And they would go out and they would tell. They would tell everyone that they could. And even in the face of horrific torture, they would confess their faith and not renounce it, and some of them died for it. That's why Paul now writes, 1 Corinthians 15, these words in verses 1 and 2, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So the resurrection of Jesus is a myth in your life, is in vain, the Bible says, if you believe in something other than Jesus to save you, including yourself. And the resurrection of Jesus is a myth in your life. It does nothing for you. It's, it's like a, a fairy tale that's a nice story but isn't true. If you think that faith is just head knowledge, that you just need to pass a test, like confirmation. Then Paul writes the resurrection, then it's in vain. See, but the gospel, the resurrection itself, saves you from all that. The resurrection confronts you, and it convicts you, and it changes you. That's the evidence. That's the evidence that you believe that the resurrection is a miracle, not just in the world, not just on that first Easter Sunday, but a miracle in your heart and a miracle in your life. And like Peter and Mary and Thomas and the other followers of Jesus, you know that the resurrection is a miracle in your life when you don't need the same pleasures that you used to need to be happy. You need Jesus, and everything else doesn't matter. And you know that the resurrection is real in your life when you no longer lose control of your feelings when circumstances go bad. And you know that your faith will not fail you because Jesus will not fail you either. And you know that the resurrection is a miracle and it's working in your life when you worry less and believe more. And when you talk less about sports and traffic and weather and more about Jesus to your friends. And you all do that to one degree or another or you want to do that and that's evidence that the resurrection of Jesus is real and it's working in your heart and it's working in your life. Your faith in Jesus that saves you is a faith in Jesus that changes you. Resurrection is God's work, and it's active and alive in your life. That's the evidence. I believe it. Jesus believes it. You need to believe that too. Uh, Paul goes on, and I just want to comment on this, this phrase that he has in here because it's important. Well, that's the phrase, and that's how I'm describing it. It's important. 
He says, this is first importance, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. So, what's most important to you when you are living in the resurrection, and the resurrection is real in your life, what's most important to you is not your kids, not your spouse, not friends, not sports, not music, not looking good to others, not your house, not your job. What's most important is Jesus. And then you experience all those other things which are good things, but they're not ultimate things. They're good things, and you filter them through Jesus. And when you see them through Jesus, when you see them through the resurrection, they have the balance and the impact that Jesus intends for them to have in your life as gifts to you. You can look at your job and not be under this pressure to perform for anyone except performing for Jesus as an audience of one. And when you do, the wheels might fall off, the boss might be a jerk, the department might get cut, but your faith doesn't fail because you know Jesus won't fail you either. And when you're living the resurrection, you look at your spouse and your kids and you don't find your identity in them. You don't need them to approve of you, nor do you need others' approval by using them to look good to others. But rather you look at them and you smile and they're in your heart and they're the most important people in this world except for Jesus. And you see them through Jesus and you appreciate them as gifts Jesus has given to you and you don't put the pressure on them to perform for you and to be your Savior because they can never do that. And when they don't perform the way that you expect them to or you want them to, your heart, when Jesus is number one and resurrection in your life is so full of grace that you extend grace to them. And you're willing to extend it to yourself, too, when you fail to meet their expectations. And that's a grace-filled home and a grace-filled family. When the resurrection is alive in your heart, you look at other people who are unchurched and don't have Jesus, and you see them differently. You see them not as the enemy, but as victims of the enemy, and you know that you can have an impact on these people. And so you're willing to give up your desires, you're willing to give up your needs, you're willing to give up your treasures, because it's so important for you that they believe in Jesus and the resurrection too. It's so important that you, you want them to desire Jesus, and you want them to need Jesus, and you want them to treasure Jesus. And you find yourself going beyond your comfort zone and beyond the walls of your home or your church to find them and to get Jesus to them. It is so important. That's evidence of living in the resurrection. And I know you do that to one degree or another. I want you to do it more. I know you believe that. I know, you want, I know that you want to do that. 
So go out this week and be Peter and Mary and Thomas and live. Live like the resurrection is the miracle that it is. Not just that it happened, but that it happens in you. An airport cargo handler was, uh, was unloading pets and he panicked because he's unloading one pet cage after another and he grabs this cage to put it on the, be- on the belt and it was a dog and the dog was dead. The owner must have gone on vacation for five weeks. All right, so he has this dead dog. He quick talks to his buddies, the other cargo handlers. He says, oh, what are we going to do about this? We have a dead dog. They devised a plan. So the first thing they did was talk to the dog's owner, and they said, ma'am, we're sorry, but your dog was accidentally rerouted to Chicago, but should be back here tomorrow. If you come back, you can pick him up. She said, okay. In the meantime, they went to the dog pound. They found a dog that looked just like the dead dog, and they put that living dog in the cage, and then when the woman returned, they said, hey, your dog, your dog made it back safely from Chicago. Here's your dog. She said, that's not my dog. Oh, sure, that's your dog. It, it just has some jet lag, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's really your dog. may not seem the same, but it's your dog. No, no. She, and this went back and forth, and she insisted, that's not my dog. Finally, they said, well, what makes you so sure that this is not your dog? She said, my dog was dead. I was sending it back to be buried. See, normally, dead things don't become alive things, at least very easily. But when they do, it's a miracle. Jesus became alive, and because he became alive, you become alive too. Christ is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your power and, you, and your grace. You put them together perfectly at the cross and in the tomb for us. You rose from the dead so that we would have no guilt, no fear, no hopelessness in our lives ever. When the devil comes to us with his lies to convince us that those are true, may your truth planted deeply in our hearts resonate and ring in our faith so that we might believe in you above all. Help us to honor you above all, to live so that others see you risen from the dead in us, alive and well too, and to live a life full of hope and joy because you are our living Savior. Amen.